0: I'm excited to share this conversation with Danielle Jose Older. We travel deep, wide, and far in this conversation. Like usual, I'll be sending an email out to supporters that will include links to many of the things we discuss, but this one will be unusually robust. It will include some of Older's writing videos, a video of the public memorial for Ursula K. Le Guin, where Older eulogized her, articles by Older about everything from H.P. Lovecraft to Writing Across Difference to The Garbage Offensive of 1969. For those who subscribe to the bonus audio, this is one of the most delightful 20 minutes of storytelling you are bound to hear in a long time, the first chapter of the soon-to-be-released book, Shadow Shaper Legacy. It's the perfect thing to curl up by the fire and listen to. If you're interested in becoming a supporter of the show, to find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, or to discover what other benefits there are to being a supporter of Between the Covers. You can find out more at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers, or at tinhouse.com support. Enjoy today's program.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
2: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical
0: effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
1: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel. Didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer, editor, and composer Daniel Jose Older. Older is the author of the young adult series Shadow Shaper Cipher. The first book, Shadow Shaper, was a New York Times notable book, winner of the International Latino Book Award, shortlisted for the Kirkus Prize in Young Readers Literature, and named one of Esquire's 80 Books Every Person Should Read. He's also the author of Salsa Nocturna, a linked collection of stories of supernatural noir, as well as the Bone Street Roomba urban fantasy series, the middle-grade historical Civil War-era fantasy with dinosaurs called Dactyl Hill Squad, and Star Wars Last Shot, a Han Solo Lando Calrissian novel that shows us, among other things, a world of gender-non-binary pilots and tech-savvy Ewok hackers. The Domestic Life of Han Solo as a Politician's Husband and Insecure Parent, and a Much-Needed Corrective to the Reductive Jar Jar Binks Stereotype. Daniel Jose Older's Journalism on Social Justice, Diversity, and Gentrification appear regularly in The Guardian. His short prose, fiction and nonfiction, have been published at Tor.com, Strange Horizons, NPR, The New York Times, and BuzzFeed, among others as well as in Jesmyn Ward's edited anthology, The Fire This Time, A New Generation Speaks About Race, and The Mothership Anthology, Tales from Afrofuturism and Beyond. Older also co-edited the Locus and World Fantasy-nominated anthology, Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, He's facilitated workshops on storytelling, music, and anti-oppression organizing at public schools, religious houses, universities, and prisons, and was behind the ultimately successful petition to remove avowed racist H.P. Lovecraft as the model for the statue for the World Fantasy Awards. Daniel Jose Older is here today to talk about his latest, much-anticipated novel, Out from Macmillan, entitled The Book of Lost Saints. Receiving a starred review from Publishers Weekly, Marlon James calls the book of Lost Saints spellbinding, a fever dream full of magic and loss, wickedness and grace, faith and love, spirit and power. N.K. Jemison adds that Older's book is a lyrical, beautiful, devastating, literally haunting journey of assimilation, resistance and family. Finally, Lee Bardugo says, The Book of Lost Saints is a boldly drawn family saga that is equal parts mystery and ghost story, with details sharp enough to cut and characters who surprise at every turn. Welcome to Between the Covers, Daniel Jose Older.
1: Thank you. That was... An incredibly comprehensive introduction. <laughs> I sound amazing. Yeah, you are amazing. <laughs> Thank you. I feel amazing after hearing all those great things that I, I did. I, I you've even, done all this. I hadn't put it all together like that. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> I should take you with me on the road. All right. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> it's, great, it's great to be here. Yeah.
0: So, so you've called the Book of Lost Saints a story of being lost in between. Mm. And one of the ways you've described this in-betweenness is the gap between the stories you heard of Cuba growing up as a child and the reality of visiting Cuba as an adult and the ways these two things fit or didn't fit. Mm-hmm. So, so I'd love to start here with mm-hmm. this goal of creating a story in the gaps between the imaginative and the real. So m- maybe we could start with what were the stories that were conjured that either haunted you or kept, or kept you enraptured in, in as a child about Cuba?
1: Sure. Um, you know I think that 's sort of the the nightmare slash paradise dream of of so many children of of exile and of diaspora is um the stories we hear about the homeland and what does it mean and what doesn 't it mean and how you put all the pieces together um i was I was lucky to grow up in a house that was very honest with the about the challenges that 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 they faced growing up you know in in a time of revolution in a time of dictatorship. Um, without sugarcoating it and without going to the other extreme of just making everything into total monstrosities and inhumanity, that's not true for a lot of the discourse around Cuba. Um, and I realized that when I looked out into the world and, and started taking in other, other, um, points of view and and reading up on it. And so one of the actual gaps is actually not even between what was actually there and what I heard so much as, you know, just all the different ways of telling a story. And and some of them are lies and some of them are just different angles. It, it's just this huge <laughs> Rashomon of, of complexity. And, um, going there myself was just another piece of that puzzle. You know, I don't think it was, so, it wasn't so much that like, Oh, now I understand it. Right. It was like, Oh, now I have my own stories and mythologies to add into this big mix of all these other voices And that's a piece of this, but it's a very narrow piece, really, because as as an outsider and everything except blood, um, who had only just done my homework and showed up at age 21, you know, um, all I could know was what I saw and what I understood and what I heard from the people I spoke to. And there's just it's not even just that there's no one story. There's certainly no two stories. And that's actually the bigger lie I think we face with, with issues like as divisive as Cuba, is that there's this one side and there's this other side. And they're both so loud that we barely get to hear anything else. But it's really that most of the people, I think, fit somewhere in between those two sides. And those are the voices I was really trying to tap into with the Book of Los Saints. Mm.
0: Well, you've described the time period when you visited Cuba as the twilight of one time and the dawn of another. And um, I would love for you to talk maybe just briefly about that time period because that time period is obviously also going to be very different from the time period of, say, the Cuban Revolution or before the Cuban Revolution.
1: Exactly. And that's how this is sort of a doubly historical novel, which I didn't set out to do. I really thought it was just going to be... You know, so the premise real quick is, of course, Marisol is the narrator and she disappeared during the Cuban Revolution. And she reemerges into the world as a spirit in New Jersey in 2004. and She's watching over her nephew and she's essentially tied to him. She's anchored to him spiritually in that if she gets too far, she starts to fade. And the only way she can access her own memories is through his dreams. So every time he goes to sleep, we get another anecdote from or not anecdote, but moment of her life that she kind of shoves into his subconscious so it's a it 's a dual narrative, of course we 're getting her trying to get him to to figure out what happened to her in two thousand and four New Jersey, and then we get her memories of of revolutionary Cuba um, originally, it was just going to be set in sort of a vague present tense. Um, And then I realized I went back to the first time I went to Cuba was in 2001. Um, I returned a couple times more recently, and it's changed so dramatically since that time that I was there that I really I realized I really had to set it much more closely in order to talk about the Cuba that I saw when I visited that first time. Um, That was the very end of the special period, Uh, the special period is a euphemistic name if there ever was one. It was a terrible time for Cuba. Um, Apagones, which means blackouts, giant blackouts, were um, a constant. Um, everything was short in terms of, not, you know, no one had anything, barely. Um, so it was a difficult time. And most of all, the feeling in the street was very low. It was There was a lot of fear, from my experience of walking around. It was It wasn't the... Stereotypical celebratory Caribbean nation that you want to believe is there. You know, when you think about Cuba, um, people weren't out. Uh, if they were, they were tourists, and people catering to tourists, and um, that in itself was a little bit heartbreaking.
0: Um, we should yeah. mention the the so called special period began with. The fall of the soviet union and Mm -hmm. then all of the funding and undergirding support that was that cuba was depending upon
1: right so of course the blockade is still going on like all of these different influences are affecting everything um as they still are you know and and um that very much played into the cuba that i first met and saw and understood and that's the cuba that we see in this book yeah
0: you've described the feeling of being in cuba as as that of being a ghost Mm -hmm. of traveling the streets that you recognized in your imagination, mm-hmm. either from your family or from books that you'd read right. and recognizing them in a certain way and through a certain lens. And, and you've chosen to tell this book from the perspective of a ghost or an ancestral spirit.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's, it, that arose partially from a conversation you had with a friend, mm-hmm. Samuel Reynolds. So mm-hmm. talk, talk to us about that conversation and how that sparked the idea of, of telling the story that you wanted to tell uh, from the perspective of a spirit.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I was uh, about to go off to um, t- to do my master's in uh, in creative writing, and I was walking around Brooklyn with Sam one day, and, and I was thinking about that, and, and I realized I would have this period of time in which to write something not for publication at all, something that was purely just a book that I wanted to write and, you know, outside of all that other trappings of, of getting published. Um, I knew I wanted to publish eventually, but, you know. So I, I wanted to take that opportunity and just write something different than what I usually wrote and just see what happened. And it was Sam who said something like, oh, yeah, what did, I always think about what what happened to the spirits in the Isle of Pines. And the Isle of Pines is a famous Um, Cuban prison, which was actually a panopticon, which I find so fascinating in part because I was obsessed with panopticons in college, you know, the Foucault theory of, of the all seeing eye. And of course, and like the way that we take on the prison guards inside of ourselves and create a tiny prison guard in our head and act accordingly. And as a theory of power, it rings true in so many fascinating ways, both here in the United States and in Cuba in very different ways. But the way that power manifests, it, it, to that degree of complication, like it just captured my imagination so much in college. And it wasn't until later I found out that some of my family members had been imprisoned in that very um, Panopticon-style prison. Um, but that whole journey certainly speaks to the haunting of being a child of exile and uh, of wondering, the haunting that our own imagination does as we think about what was it like for them, you know, what was it like for the people that fought, sometimes died, or suffered for us to have the life we have which we think of as boring you know and that's like the this sort of central tension i think to this generational conflict of those who got away and those who you know survived and fought and struggled and then those who are the children of those people who mm. who you know have these wonderful lives that we take for granted very often and wonder on, on infinitely what it was like for the, the people that you know had these adventures which are actually terrifying you know which actually caused trauma <laughs> but we see in movies as like just things that people do you know shooting bad guys and getting shot at and running away um, which is to say I, I had thought a lot about it I didn't know how it would fit into a book if ever but I knew it was a gigantic thing inside of me in my imagination so when Sam said that it felt like there was this little stick holding up a huge avalanche and he just kicked it away. <laughs> and then it was like, yeah, it just ne- I needed someone else to say it to me because those spirits had always been in the back of my imagination. When he said it, it was like, all right, that's going to be the book.
0: Yeah. It feels like spirit feels like a better word than ghost because this isn't a ghost story in like the horror genre right. or right. the typical fantastical genre mm-hmm. of ghosts. It's exactly. more like the lived caribbean cosmology of ancestral spirits yeah. and so um what one of the things that i think really makes this spirit or ghost story stand out also is that often ghosts and stories are contacting protagonists and mm, in this mm. case the ghost is the protagonist <laughs> and often ghosts are all knowing or have access to a lot of information that right. the people who are alive don't but in this case in a way that marisol is is on a journey of self discovery yes. she has a a fragmented sense of mm-hmm. self and of exactly. how how her life ended right. and she's on a journey to find herself yep
1: totally uh, yeah yeah, that's, that was something I realized as I was writing it that I really wanted to lean into because there's kind of a turning point, there's a decision point in, in the process of writing this book. Is it Marisol's story? Is it Ramon's story, right? And and traditionally, yes, this book would have been written for, for Ramon, about Ramon from his point of view. Um, but we've seen that a lot. You know, we've seen the character who figures out that their, their ancestor is walking with them and how do they maneuver through that and then how does it become a journey to find themselves? And Ramon does have a very clear arc, I think, and really does. It is also his self- Discovery. He goes from being kind of a lump to being someone who really <laughs> will do something in the world and, and make a difference. Um, but it is Marisol's story. And in a funny way, which I didn't realize when I was writing it, he, Ramon, the flesh and blood human, is her guide. You know, in the way that we're used to seeing the Virgils in the spirit form take yeah. Dante through Yeah, I did not thought of
0: that either. That's true.
1: Yes, and I think that's cool. You know, like she relies on him the way that uh, uh, someone going on a journey relies on their guide. He's an unwitting guide, but um, he is her mechanism for finding the truth and and so they but they're also just bound together they need each other in a very uncomfortable way and she at one point calls herself a parasite because she understands just how much what a toll it's taking for her to be just pouring her traumas into him night after night in order to get what she wants needs really And she has to make that choice over and over. And I think Mm -hmm. that's her dealing with that guilt slash understanding that that's just the necessity of it is really a lot of what the book is about. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, one of the ways suspense is baked into the plot Mm -hmm. is that Marisol's life as a spirit is flickering out. Mm -hmm. So she has a limited time to find out um, why she is dead and under what circumstances. And as you said, the main way she does this is by inhabiting Ramon's dreams and Her nephew and Ramon is a is a DJ Mm -hmm. and he's also a security guard Mm -hmm. at the hospital in New Jersey. And you and Ramon are are far from the same person. I'm not suggesting that you're the same person. He's he's
1: taller than me, (laughs) (laughs) but
0: we do see your shared interest in music. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that your years of working as an EMT probably Mm -hmm. informed a lot of the hospital scenes. Um, You acknowledge the often mysterious interplay between the real and the imagined mm-hmm. in in your acknowledgements. When you say my family who survived so much and came through with their souls intact, this book is not about them. It is not based on them, but it, but it is deeply inspired by them. Mm-hmm. I wondered is, is this distinction between a book based on them versus a book inspired by them, something you thought about much as you wrote, or was it something that just sort of happened automatically as you Created a fictional world, drawing on your own lived experience and the stories that you've heard.
1: Sure, it was a very distinct choice in that I knew I had to make it. I knew I had. To, let me, actually, here's a good example. When I was writing the Dr. Hill Squad, right, um, I didn't want to feel totally beholden to the weight of history, and that was part of what got exciting about it. When I added dinosaurs to the idea of the Civil War, right, so in a way, it turned out I was tricking myself because as it happened, I got extremely obsessed with the history part of it. And the book is totally linked to history in ways that I never thought it would have been. Uh-huh. Uh, but I needed the out mentally to ha- to be able to just be like, Oh yeah, but they were pterodactyls. So <laughs> if I have to move get- Gettysburg a couple of weeks away from when it really happened, it's because the troops move faster, you know, right. because they were on pterodactyl back <laughs> or whatever, you know, right. um, it allowed me to kind of detach some and, and make the story mine, no matter what. Um, a similar process I think was at play in that the, the what my family lived through in just in the large world scheme of things, the fact that they were very present in Cuba in the midst of the revolution um, was so fascinating to me, you know, as a, as a young person and then as a writer. And it just felt like something, as I've said, that called out to be written. But I didn't want to write it in a way where I would be beholden to their actual lives. And to it was it was never going to be a memoir. And I never wanted to write a memoir or a history, a family history. Um I wanted to tell both the story of that time, but also the st- or a story of that time, but uh, uh, really the stories of what it means to try and understand that time from far away from it. Um, what it means to try to piece together all these scattered memories. If you think of it in a way, and I hadn't really thought of it when I was writing it, I'm just thinking of it now. But Marisol's soul 's memories are pretty much. Th- that's what you would hear if you were talking to, you know if Marisol lived and told her children what happened to her it would be these small moments right we don't get like the everyday doldrums of living in cuba we from our parents and grandparents we hear here was the time this happened you know this gigantic moment this was when bay of pigs happened and these were the things that surrounded that right and so in a way like she's piecing together the little scraps that have survived which are the scraps the very scraps that we would give to our children you know as we move forward
0: in case you just tuned in we're talking today to daniel jose older about his latest book the book of lost saints I wanted to return to something you said at the very beginning, because when I think again of this book and of this being a book of being lost in the Mm in-between, there's another way in which I think this book is particularly gratifying and distinctive. And that's that your novel refuses the notion that there are two sides to every story, like you mentioned at the beginning. So in, in in particular, it's refusing that there are two sides to the story of the Cuban revolution. So It isn't suggesting that there's one story, that there's a right story, but rather that the two dominant narratives, the leftist pro-Castro revolutionary narrative and the conservative anti-Castro counter-revolutionary narrative Mm -hmm. are erasing the realities and complexities of a lot of other stories.
2: Perfectly put.
0: And that they maintain a sort of a black and white polarity by amplifying themselves at the expense of stories that maybe have more nuance and contradiction in them. Mm So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about traveling in between these two stories that take up all the oxygen in the room.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said it so well. I mean, what can I add? <laughs> That's very much it. I mean, it's if you talk to almost anyone from Cuba, um whether they're here or there or somewhere else, um you will hear these these nuances and these truths and this and this challenge of what it means to stay or what it means to leave, you know. And what it means to, if you stay, then survive, you know, in a, in a country that turned out the way Cuba did both from the blockade and from the way that Castro ran things. Um, and all of the, of the tragedy and trivialities that that entails. Um, or you will hear the the heartbreak of what it meant to leave and all the things that that they left behind and that they think about every day, you know, and that they miss and their regret sometimes. So the, the, the truth of it is in the telling and is in the, the many, many voices. The truth of it is also just right there in the history books, if you look. Um, the revolution itself had numerous fronts. It wasn't just Castro. And most of those people were either imprisoned or killed, disappeared, or, you know, uh, various other things would happen. Um, yeah, so so many people disappeared. Um, so many of the people who were very um, deeply committed to the revolution um, didn't like it becoming um narrowed down to a single person and and they either turned against it but weren't necessarily pro imperialist, um, or they or they were killed, you know. Or yeah. or they went into exile. And those are the stories that that I think are really important to unearth and to really talk about as we try to delve into getting deeper into one side or the other.
0: Well that's what I loved because you we get the full spectrum of yeah. different Cuban and Cuban-American characters in the Book of Lost Saints. But one thing that we see a lot of in this book and maybe is foregrounded is that once the revolution happens and a revolutionary government is established and with it the beginning of community surveillance (laughs) and televised public executions Mm -hmm. is the phenomenon of revolutionaries, Cubans who fought against Batista alongside Castro and Mm -hmm. Che, Mm -hmm. becoming counter-revolutionaries as you say, not because they're an, not because they're pro-imperialist. Right. They are anti-imperialist, and they've risked their lives. Right. But they're becoming counter-revolutionaries for any number of other dissatisfactions with the way the revolution actually takes shape on the ground.
1: Exactly.
0: So I was curious about this, and mm-hmm. was just looking. Did you go down the rabbit hole. I did go down the rabbit <laughs> hole. It prompted me to look for real-life examples. I'm just going to read a couple. Yeah, please. Um, So I didn't have to look very far, but Pedro Luis Diaz-Lanz was Castro's personal pilot, Mm -hmm. head of the Revolutionary Air Force, smuggled arms for the revolution, but ultimately didn't want the country to go communist. And then there's Uber Matos, a schoolteacher who became an arms smuggler for Castro, and then ultimately a combat commander who led the liberation of Santiago de Cuba. And he was appointed commander of the new government's army. But he also opposed Castro's eventual turn to communism, and he wanted to resign. Mm-hmm. But instead, he was arrested for treason, spent twenty years in prison, and mm-hmm. sixteen of them in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And I, I wondered if there were, if if these figures or other figures were were looming large for you yeah, as you absolutely. as you wrote.
1: Absolutely, Uber Matos especially is entwined with my own family history, and um, I have family members who fought with him in, in both. Situations of his fighting and um, as
0: a revolutionary and a counter revolutionary,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I think he's a perfect example. You know, a name we don't know, a name we don't hear, but such a, a that that right there, you know, is such a potent and, and tragic story. Really, uh, of someone who who fought and really at the end, you know, continued to fight for a free Cuba against all odds. And that's what we're left with, I think, when the dividing line becomes so stark. Yeah. Cienfuegos is another fascinating. Camilo Cienfuegos. His disappearance. His disappearance, sure. I mean, there's so many examples of just, just, just speaking out or being you know, someone who didn't agree 100% with this one person was a death sentence. And that's something I just think, no matter what political side you're on, we can't tolerate that degree of intolerance. Um, and that's the tragedy of it.
0: Well, there was one story of a revolutionary who turned against the specifics of the revolution as they took shape that made me wonder about you and your experience, Mm -hmm. not only as a Cuban-American writer, but also a Cuban-American writer who happens to also be an organizer and an Mm -hmm. activist. So I was reading about the writer, poet, and art critic Carlos Franqui. Yeah. He was the editor of the underground newspaper put out by the revolutionaries. And when the revolution established itself as a government, he was put in charge of the new government newspaper. But um, by the late 60s, he'd broken with Castro's government over political differences. Right. He opposed the Soviet invasion of Yugoslavia um, and he lived in exile. Right. But he was shunned in exile by Cuban exiles because of his role supporting the revolution in the first place. Right. So he was literally living in an in-between. Yes. he had re- been. He had rejected – the Castro led revolution and been rejected by the Cuban exile community for supporting revolution at all. And this, and this made me wonder about what it would be like to be like you, a left wing Mm -hmm. Cuban American, Mm -hmm. an activist organizer who isn't pro Castro, Mm -hmm. but I'm assuming is Mm, Um, anti-Batista. I wonder this because on the one hand, while this is starting to change, Cuban Americans have largely identified as Republican with 57% of Cuban Americans in Florida voting for Trump. Right. Um, so the anti Castro Cuban American community, at least the one that has the most institutional power, you would be out of step with. Yeah. But then I also think about what it must be like to do activism with non Cuban progressives right. in the United States, because many of them view Che and Castro much like I imagine people view Holly Selassie as iconic, almost mm-hmm. mythic figures, mm-hmm. and as symbols of successful resistance against colonial powers, mm-hmm. which puts you maybe mm-hmm. like Frankie in a sense <laughs> like in the in between. Yes, I mean, I'm imagining I'm imagining no, into your good. life, but I'm curious about yeah. your lived life sure. as a writer activist, creating narratives right. that perhaps neither side want to actually hear.
1: Right. Right. No, that's a very good analogy. And Frankie is famous for – Carlos Frankie is famous for also being disappeared from a photograph. I don't know if you saw that in the And he in wrote your a research. poem about it. He wrote a great poem about it, which I was thinking about recently. But um, yeah, and and he wrote a, a pretty fascinating memoir too, which on the cover has the the photograph before he was erased from it and, and the one after. Um, because
0: the government – didn't want evidence that he was a pivotal figure with anybody right
1: or close enough to Castro you know because it's specifically with Castro and he's like in the background you know it's not even like they're shaking hands (laughs) right but he couldn't have even been seen as nearby which is really speaks to the fragility of of gigantic power is so fragile um but, back to your question, absolutely, you know, and I think the struggle for me there's a lot of struggles, you know, of course, and some of that is in having difficult conversations with family, some of it is having difficult conversations with friends and and fellow organizers, and ultimately, like your people are the ones who you listen to and who will listen to you, and that's sort of what it comes down to is being able to have uncomfortable conversations, um activist circles that can't have uncomfortable conversations are doomed. You can't, um, act of you can't organize with someone who can't hear your truth. Um, ultimately, you know, imperialism is the bigger problem in the world because it's global because it's gone on for centuries, you know, because it's killed many, 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 many more people that being true. Doesn't mean that we get to then just pretend everything is fine in Cuba, you know? And I think, the degree of disinformation that happens around Cuba um, is is startling and is painful to sort of feel and, and see having, um, you know, family history involved with that. And, but it, again, it, it comes down to being able to talk to people or not. And then knowing like, okay, you know, if we can't have this conversation, then it's either just a, a topic we don't touch or, or one of us steps away. Yeah. And that is hard, but yeah. that is, um, that is also part of the work.
0: Well, thinking about this, finding people to be in community with and mm-hmm. whether you're going to step away or, mm-hmm. or maybe navigate difficult truths. So you, you you wrote an article called why U S Latinos need to get loud about the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. that looked at anti-blackness in the Latino community in general, but also more specifically in the context of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And that piece in that piece, you quote from a poem by Gloria Anzaldúa that mm-hmm. I loved, yeah. and it's the lines: "You are the battleground where enemies are kin to each other. You are at home, a stranger." And I was thinking about how much this quote resonates with the book of Lost Saints. It mm. could—it feels like it could be an ep- epigraph for the book, where the enemies truly are kin to each other, right. and thus each person is, a, in a sense, a battleground themselves. Mm. The way I might articulate something that the Book of Lost Saints does is is it's an attempt to bring the whole family mm. to the table, mm. not not mm. as a not in some sort of like new age harmony, right? But that we would at least could see who everybody would be if everyone was allowed to sit there.
1: Yes, you know it's interesting you say that too because actually, um, Gloria Sobdua's poetry is the form, forms the epigraph of my first novel. Oh, really? Half Resurrection Blues. Okay. Because I love. The, those ideas that she that she traffics with so deeply is this question of of being in between and right and Half Resurrection Blues is a novel about a man who's both dead and alive at the same time and moves between the worlds of the dead and the living. So there's a lot of resonance with all that. But absolutely the 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 novel, Book of Lost Saints, is very much about Bringing all the voices to the table, and and exactly what you said, it's not so that everyone can have a great dinner and feel good about themselves, because the one family dinner we do see in that <laughs> is, a, it's like a lorca <laughs> tragedy, right? Like yeah. it is a mess, as it should be, <laughs> as it has to be, right? right? I mean, if we're being honest, then um, the ghosts will come out, and that's what happens in in many different ways. Um, but but if we take, I think the relationship between Mirta who's the sister, who's Ramon's mother and and Marie who 's the narrator who who's who vanished, and their third sister Isabel, who committed suicide um to me that those that tr- sort of trio really just speaks of the impossible choices that we 're forced to make by war by mm-hmm. revolution, by gigantic changes um, and and it pits us it 's not just that it pits us against each other it 's that it pits us against ourselves. They all made choices that de- that were self-destructive as much as they destroyed each other. And they all s- participated in each other's destruction on some level. And... That's where revolution stops being so sexy, you know, and I think that's sort of the conversation we need to have and not in a way where it stops us from organizing and from being revolutionaries and whatever that may mean to ourselves, not in a way where it um, makes us sit back down or stop raising our voices, but in a way that makes us very clear on what are the consequences of our actions, what are the um, what, what are mechanisms of, of accountability as we move forward into the world that's changing very quickly and that's sometimes changing because of our actions. Um, and that's what I wanted to talk about is this, this challenge of facing up to what we've done and what, what our potential to do is without making it shut us down, but actually making us step forward with more integrity and honesty, compassion and, and ferocity. Mm.
0: Well, I marked out a section in the book that mm-hmm. I was hoping you'd read that of is, course, a, is yeah. a family section. It's a oh, scene good. between Marisol and her sister
1: Isabel. This is a section that, that takes us back into the Cuba section, uh, the Cuba, the revolutionary Cuba. So, this is one of Marisol's memories that she's um, giving to Ramon as he sleeps. And this is after the revolution has triumphed and it's gone a bit sour already. And Isabel, who is Marisol, the narrator's sister, fought with the revolution. She's one of these characters who fought with the revolution and then uh, realized it wasn't going well and once it uh, came into power f- turned against it and began j- join the underground movement uh, against the revolution. So at this point I think Isabel feels like things are closing in around her. The revolutionary forces who are now the governmental forces uh, are probably suspicious of her and she's holed up in an apartment in um, Vedado, which is part of La Habana, part of Havana, and um, Marisol goes to visit her. So we're in the middle of that visit. She smiles, and outside, La Vana churns, and when we settle back down from laughing, I ask her, do you regret it? And her eyes dart away from me, out the window. Given what's happened, I say. But there's no need. The code is already established by now. Anything that isn't clarified is presumed to be about it the it that's eaten into our lives and eroded all of our most sacred secrets, that it. Because there's no other, so there's no need. It's defined by our silence about it, a tragedy explained through negative space. And so Isabel just frowns, nods slightly, and sips her rum. Sometimes, she whispers, a few seconds after I've given up any hope that she'll answer. Sometimes I do, yes. Then she shrugs, the most Cubanist of Cuban shrugs, adds a slight grimace to her frown and lights a popular. Tell me, I say, and without meaning to, I'm begging her. It's one word in Spanish, dime, just one letter off from dame, give me, because what I want is the gift of her thoughts, her story. Tell me, give it to me. Don't be a hundred miles away on this, our last cup of coffee shared between sisters in the living world. Tell me before everything falls apart even more, while you're still here to tell, give it to me. In this city, where everyone is listening always, and our very thoughts are contraband, to tell the truth is an act of rebellion, she told me, About the long nights sleeping under the stars in the Sierra Maestra. Or tucked away in hideaways and storehouses along side roads and back alleys. About the lice and the diarrhea and the time she was caught and had to let a soldier touch her and then suck him off to get free. She told me about understanding the gun the heaviness in your arms and the shock of the release, the way it feels like everything's breaking inside the first time you shoot and the way your body gets used to it, and the way it feels like everything's breaking inside the first time you kill a man, and then the way your soul gets used to it and how that makes it worse. She told me about her friends who helped her along the way, Gomez, of course, and others too, and the men who laughed at her, tried to kick her out or rape her, sneered and spat at her. She laughed and shook her head and told me about the bittersweet victory and the gradual disenchantment. And that's when I knew. Even if I couldn't admit it, it was over for Isabel. Because no one in their right mind tells the whole truth in such a place, such a time. No one. That was, perhaps, the first act of her suicide. So many who'd fought in the revolution were already gone by then, like the movement was eating itself from the inside. Uber Matos, who led the assault against Santiago, had been taken into custody, and Cienfuegos vanished in a plane crash. So many more. And of course, Gomez, his last cut-off curse still echoing through all of us. And maybe that's when she decided, when she gave up. Says she already knew things would spin out of control, even before they did, She'd been watching from the inside, holding whispered consults with Gomez whenever their paths crossed. As the whole multi-faced rebellion collapsed into one singular force, and then that one spread out in shockwaves across the country, Isabel and Gomez watched, nodding sadly. Then the killings began. One by one the old warriors crumbled, scattered their broken armies and disappeared into prisons or were lined up against the wall and cut down, their last breaths cursing a single man and his huge maniacal vision. And some simply fled. But clearly there was no stopping the machine. Even when rumors spread of an uprising in the Escambray, Isabel didn't have much hope. She did what she could used some of the resources and skills she'd gathered during the revolution to smuggle arms and food along toward the whispers of a new front. But they were just whispers. And Cuba was a giant echo chamber with one booming voice cascading down on all our heads, keeping us up at night, poisoning our dreams, hopes, and fears. Entonces, Isabel says, a placeholder, with no place to hold. And I can see there's no hope left in her. And so. She lifts the cigarette to her lips, still looking out the window. Then she looks at me, right at me. Entonces, she says again, and the rest goes unspoken, because it's all around us. It's written on her face. And so. Here I am, a broken woman in a broken country, barely alive with rage for the broken revolution i helped to birth and not a hope or dream of making it right a hundred canned goods and ten thousand rounds of ammo around me in this cluttered apartment a shotgun under the bed and a pistol pistol on the counter so when they come the end will be quick she sighs and so and then i leave Making my way through the crowded Verado streets with tears in my eyes and only half an idea why. And already I'm so completely, thoroughly alone in the world, in this city that is mine and no one's, that was ours and now is his, that once embraced me and now frowns, cautious and speaks in code and holds its secrets close. It's cold. The wind blowing in from the ocean wraps around me, and I pull my shawl close, and a week later, one year and four months after the triumph of the glorious revolution, in preparation for an imminent invasion at Playa Girón from the Yankee imperialists and their exile army police, go door to door, sweeping up anyone and everyone that has even the slightest hint of subversion in their records so that no uprising will take root. And when they get to my sister's apartment and bash in the door, they just find a cup of coffee on the table, still warm, and a cigarette half-smoked in the ashtray, and the screen door leading to the balcony open, wide open, and the cool ocean breeze making the curtains dance like spirits in the empty room.
0: We've been listening to Daniel Jose Older read from The Book of Lost Saints. So I want to ask you a question about the relationship of time and history in this book. Mm -hmm. But before I do, I sort of want to take what will seem like a detour, Mm -hmm. because there's something from your piece that you recently wrote in the New York Times Mm -hmm. called Garbage Fires for Freedom, Mm -hmm. when Puerto Rican activists took over New York streets, that sort of prompted this question. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could start, because you'd be better at this than I would at orienting listeners who don't know about the um spanish harlem garbage offensive of 1969 mm. what that was and who the young lords were
1: yeah i was so happy they asked me to write that because the young lords actually directly inspired some scenes in the later part of the book which are oh, kind really? of spoilers yeah when i can't even talk about it, but okay well we there, you'll know when you get there yeah. and you know having read it that yeah. um there's certain rebellious activity in the united states that, that yeah absolutely um well, their legacy is just so large for activists, particularly Latinx activists. And they you know, they really took a cue from the Black Panthers. And what, one thing I admire so much about them is that they followed without sort of trying to take over or take the spotlight, but just took the model of what the Panthers were doing and said, let's do this for our folks and let's make it make sense in our community and deal with our community directly. And that's what they did. Um, and when they went out into their community, what they found was that, People weren't, you know, spitting out revolutionary rhetoric so much as saying, look, like no one's picking up the trash, man. Like that's the problem we're having right now, which in itself does have revolutionary connotations for sure. Um, and it also means is a great lesson for activists in, in listening, which is really what activists and writers have to do best. So they responded by um, going to the Department of Sanitation and um, asking for more pickup, and when they wouldn't give it to them, taking the brooms and taking the the trash stuff and bringing it out and doing a big community-wide cleanup. And then when they still wouldn't pick up the trash, they put the trash in the streets, barricading the streets, um, specifically knowing that they were on a direct route for a lot of the rich people leaving town over the weekend. Um, and so causing blockages, making their problem other people's, rich people's problems. And that's when things, of course, started to change. And then when still nothing happened, they set it on fire, <laughs> which is a good strategy. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was really the birth of the New York Young Lords. And and they lasted for a good chunky years after that and did some amazing uh, takeovers and activism. And most of the members are still uh, active members of the community. Some of them are journalists, uh, lawyers, all kinds of different things. But yeah.
0: Well, well part of that article, you interview someone here, um, Maristani, mm-hmm. and he said, who was part of the movement. And he says something that I feel like it feels connected to your body yeah. of work. He says, like so many things with the young Lords, you got to go backward to go forward. Yeah. And you could take that to literally mean that in order to protest the lack of garbage service, you have to put more garbage in the streets right. so that they'll eventually clean up the garbage. Right. You could you could take it that way, which that's, is true. That's a good point. Like, to go backwards like is yes. is to make your own problem worse. That's a good one, yes. But I was also thinking of it in terms of time and yeah. history because mm-hmm. you mentioned that dinosaurs is a way to trick your way into doing civil war research, mm-hmm. but they also are sort of a physical embodiment that the past never goes away. Mm-hmm. At least that's one way I think Absolutely. you could view it. Like Definitely. So here we have... The Civil War, which is the past to us, but even then there's going to be the past, the dinosaurs, which aren't really past. Um, And again, we have Marisol as the past past is the present. Yes. Um, So I guess I hear you saying yes. I was going to say, do you agree with Hiram (laughs) that we've got to go backwards (laughs) to go forwards?
1: Yes. And that is is absolutely a through line of all my work and – why ghost stories are so enticing to me. Um, Mm. And when it's not ghosts, you're right. It's dinosaurs. It's something dead that shouldn't be there being there. Um, And that is also an organizing principle is that history walks with us. And a good organizer always walks with that truth into any room they go into, whether it's their own history, not just whether, but both their own history, whatever that might be, the community they come from and work with and the history of the, of the room that they're walking into and the community they're working with at the present. And it's so important, and it's so lost. And and Mari's Soul herself is a very vibrant and um, loud mouthed version of the past catching up and and being present. And she herself is sort of it says in the beginning she just sort of spat out of the ether. You know, at a certain point, her soul just became part of the mesh of souls in the world, and then suddenly she kind of rematerialized into a, a specific soul, which is her. Um, you know, in New Jersey. And and she has to figure out why. And that's really the core thrust of the book.
0: Mm. Well, when you were doing research for your Star Wars novel, mm-hmm. you said you went to a place called Wikipedia, <laughs> yes. which I think is amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's <a great laughs> but, <site. laughs> but obviously when you're writing something that's more rooted in the real,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the research is gonna look different. Yeah. You're probably not going to Wikipedia so often. I mean,
1: I just went there for fun when I was writing. Yeah. You know? But uh,
0: but t- talk to us about the delving into the past as in terms of research for right. you in, in the Book of Lost Saints. What does the research look like? Obviously, you have the family stories you mentioned. You have your visit to yeah. Cuba. Yeah. W- what else is going on?
1: Well, those... The, let's see. I think part of the piece is like there's factual research. And then actually speaking of Star Wars, you know, um, there's a... There's a library on at Skywalker Ranch, which is the famous, like, um, just beautiful, creative world that George Lucas built. Have you been there? Maybe.
0: Uh, I
1: have. I have. It's one of the greatest places on earth. Oh um, he built a library that's an inspiration library, not a research library. And even that concept was new to me. I'm, I'm sure it's a thing. But I, you know, and it's full of just amazing research books. But the idea is that you can go in and as a creator just wander the stacks and find inspiration. Wow. And what's really cool about it, speaking of history being present, is that a lot of the folks who did the design work for the different Star Wars movies have left their bookmarks in the different places where, oh, this is what crate should look like. Here's what Jakku is going to be based on. <laughs> it's, wow. It's amazing. It like is amazing. Really one of the coolest places <laughs> I've ever been. Um, Which is to say, uh, I just want to say that because it's cool. No, um, it's just to say that like so much of the research, there was a core level of just factual research that I needed to have. But also i had been doing that sort of my whole life because I've just always, as a Cuban, been fascinated by Cuba. So many of us are kind of just born as historians because our history is so rich. And um, so i had been certainly researching it pretty heavily since college, at least. So I had a lot of the factual information kind of stored away, and I just had to refresh it. Some, um, you know, what jumped out at me when I was reading that section, which I'm glad you picked it. I think it's a powerful section. It's that in I knew as I was writing the book, and it wasn't so much an intentional choice until I realized that it was happening. Is that Castro's name is never mentioned in the whole book, mm. um, not out of a grudge, but because if you go to Cuba, certainly in the period in back in 2001, um, perhaps less so now. No one would say Castro's name out loud. There's literally a sign language which you can't see because it's radio. But people would make a beard motion. With the sign language motion, it's the idea of course that you're being bugged, right? That you're being listened to. Mm-hmm. So, but sure, it still works if you're not saying his name out loud. That's you know, and of course, there's. A long history of that, and and has very Voldemortian uh, implications of of course, but it also speaks to the degree to which you know oppression creates entire new languages and ways of communicating, um, and just takes over to that level of of um, intensity that you can't even say a word out loud, um, and you don't even—it's not even second thought. It's simply just done, right? It's like just what's done. Whether you are pro caster or not, a lot of people would do it, and and that was really startling. Um, so it became kind of important within the context of the book to sort of speak to that truth, even though I know it's not a known truth. Um, It's the silence of his name is actually very intense because he's everywhere in Cuba. You know what I mean? Like, it's so startling because like you can't get away from Castro when you're in Cuba, particularly Havana, particularly in that uh, era. It's, you know, he's everywhere except on the lips of the people that Mm -hmm. he um, rules. So I found that fascinating. And that was one of those to me, that's one of those historical details that you're not going to necessarily find in a book. It's really the experience of living it and recognizing and realizing it um, as who I am, not just as like a random interloper, but as someone whose you know, history and life is very entangled with that truth and with what that means.
0: I wanted to ask you about supernatural fiction, mm. because in your essay about H.P. Lovecraft, you say supernatural natural fiction at its best puts us in conversation with the tension fraught relationship between history and the present. Mm, that's a good question. And I, and I wondered if you considered this supernatural fiction, because while the ghost literally embodies the past right. returning, right. it feels more like the ghost and beloved mm-hmm. in the sense that it feels like it's rooted in in a, in a cultural cosmology right. rather than in science fiction and fantasy. Like I wouldn't shelve – not that we need to get into a discussion of genre. We can. <laughs> we can. But, but I wouldn't put Beloved in science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> but it is. But it is. Right. So I'm, but I yes. know what you mean. Yes. yes. <laughs> so it is and – Yeah. Yes. Um <laughs> And I don't want to say it transcends it, because I have nothing against mm-hmm. science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. either. But I know you're also a practitioner of Lukumi, mm-hmm. and that you thank in your acknowledgment several mm-hmm. gods or spirits of mm-hmm. the tradition. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you felt like this spiritual practice is informing your portrayal of Marisol.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a fine line, you're right. I, You know, is it supernatural? Eh. Sure. You know, like in the context of the world that we live in, in this particular um, cultural context, it's supernatural.
0: But some people would say Jesus was supernatural. If you're going to say, if you were to say.
1: The Bible is quite a work of science fiction. (laughs) Yes. And fantasy. Yeah. And I mean, that's sort of the truth of it all is that there's, it's all slipstream, right? There's a million examples that don't fit in with the, I mean, just the the whole question of like what we qualify as mythology versus Western canon and, and biblical studies. All that stuff is very weighted by um, hierarchies and and racism in particular. Um, so for me personally, it's not so much supernatural as it is much more like realistic fiction (laughs) because, um, I do deal with, with ancestors on a daily basis. You know, they have an altar in my house and they get food when I eat and they get coffee when I have coffee. And when I'm confused about something, I'll light a cigar and hang out with them and talk. And that's the relationship to ancestors that I longed to see in, in books. And that's, that's why that's the one that I write in books It's because it's not there. Cause so often it's, they're jumping out of closets and eating brains and everything right. else. And I'm like, that's not my experience. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Yes. That would be terrible. Right? <laughs> Especially if it's in my house, all, all that food that I put down for them and then they ate my brains. Yes. Um, but I, I also think there's so much to explore there. I'm certainly not the only one to do it, uh, especially more and more, you know, and that's what's so great. Aqueque Ameze is an amazing writer who, uh, whose book, Freshwater. Um, I've been meaning to read that. They were writing, I think we almost were writing at the same time. I know we traded manuscripts. And they there's, have
0: a young adult novel coming out too, I Pet think. Came Pet came out earlier, which is yeah.
1: fantastic and shortlisted for the National Book Award. Um, so good. Um, but, but Freshwater specifically, you know, Tuck's, often from the point of view of the spirits inhabiting the main character, which I love. Um, and it was so, our books were kind of in conversation as they were being written without us actually knowing it until mm. later. Um, but anyway, I, I think there's so much ground to cover when we start to open that world of, of, ancestral and just of spirit. Um, spirit is so much bigger than we give it credit for in a lot of literature. It's so multifaceted and complex and, all-encompassing and and layered, it has all the facets of great storytelling because it is great storytelling, um, you know. And ritual is involved, and conversation is involved. I, to me, it it actually reflects a lot the misunderstanding that we often labor under of the idea of the muse. You know, I think we we have this or we've had in the past, especially this idea that the muse is this sort of singular often female, you know, just like source of inspiration and that's it. You know, it's a very one way street. Um, my experience of inspiration is that it's very conversational and that is also reflected in my relationship with spirit It's very conversational. It's not like you're taking dictation. Um, and it's not just like you're talking to a wall, you're having a conversation with the universe and with different elements of the universe and that's prayer. And that's a beautiful thing. And I, I that's also the creative process.
2: Mm.
0: I love that. Thanks. To take this this question of, of writing with spirit, mm-hmm. you've said that the book both conjures and cleanses. Yeah. That it summons spirits and it exercises others. Yeah. So with regards to exorcism, <laughs> I wondered about shadows and your relationship to them, mm. um, either with regards to your writing craft or through the practice of Lukumi. Because mm. I think of your series Shadow Shaper mm-hmm. and also your writing workshop Shaping Your Shadow. Mm-hmm. And also something jumped out at me that you mentioned when you came to Portland uh, for the Ursula K. Le Guin Memorial. So you were here as an invited speaker along with China Mieville, Margaret Atwood, Kelly Link, and others. Mm -hmm. And during that, you talked about how you admired the way she both confronted the shadow and allowed it back in, Mm. making room for it in her work. Mm. So talk to us about shaping the shadow or making room for it. Or, or what that means for you as a writer or as a person.
1: Sure, sure. There's there's a lot of uh, metaphors that play with shadow, of course. And then shadow shaper, it's both the idea of spirit. Shadow shaping is a magic wherein you can bring spirit into a work of art and give that art life, essentially, by way of the spirit. And then it'll go and, you know, fight on your behalf and, and participate in life in another way, have a physicality. That's the shaping part, right? Um, but also in the larger cosmology, as we move through the series and come to understand that shadow is a is a in direct contrast to a, a different group that is like the light workers, um, and that the whole system was kind of created with these dualities in mind, and um, it very much became a, a work of counter narrative in that sense um, because. So much of fantasy literature has been so invested in demeaning darkness and blackness for so long, um, both in a very racialized way, I think, and in a way that's just sort of simplistic. You know, just to say like, oh, there's these bad guys and they all wear black and they want to destroy the world. You know, it's like, come on, man! Like, it's really, it's just, that's old. Like, that's uh, just not um, nuanced at all. You know, and yeah. and um, you know, for Sierra in the in the series it's really about her looking at these images that have been created of who her people are and having to both simultaneously take on her own history in terms of like embody it and live it and deal with those images and representation but also transcend it and go beyond you know what she's been told she can be and and that she's a bad guy and actually take on that power and use it to save her own life and save her her crew Um, and that's the journey of being a person of color in America, you know, it's like growing up with all these versions of who you are and, or if you exist at all, and then having to sort of take that on and understand that like, whatever it is that's happened before, you can't erase it and you have to use it to empower yourself, um, because no one else will and and deal with it head on, whether that means destroying that image or cultivating it into something that you can actually, um, identify with. Mm.
0: Well, I want to maybe push a little bit further into yeah, this this question of please. that you mentioned a minute ago about conversation, prayer, and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I pulled out three things that you've said that aren't related to each other, oh, but cool. feel related to each other. Oh, good, I and bet they are, <laughs> and just want to see if it prompts more yeah. discussion about what you just brought up because it was really beautifully said. What what you said a couple of minutes ago. Um, so the first thing you said was the roots of fiction are the stories we tell each other, not the written word. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I found was prayer is an act of conversation and it feels linked to the writing process. Mm -hmm. And the third is for me, writing always begins with self forgiveness. Mm. I don't know if they're related, but I was, but, but if you could talk more about the stories we tell versus the stories we write and then, prayer as a conversational act sure. that is somehow connected to the practice of writing, right. Which feels like a koan sort of, mm. we have the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. root of writing, not be writing, mm-hmm. but then the conversation leading to mm-hmm. uh, writing practice. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, um, that was good. but I would love to hear about a little bit more about the conversational aspect of your writing.
1: Sure. That's fascinating. um, I, the those those quotes are very related but i hadn't related them before <laughs> when you say them out loud i'm like yeah definitely they yeah. all absolutely um
0: your future book of aphorisms i know could Wait be the next minute. one <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: know how well uh, i do have a writing guide in me somewhere i haven't pulled it out yet but it's mm. definitely there cuz i love teaching and
0: when oh, you I, have those a great uh lot skillshare, share
1: uh yeah exactly classes. yeah I have a lot to say about the writing process, clearly. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think um, there's sort of an ongoing debate you'll find in the writing world about whether our characters uh, rule the story or we rule the characters or whatever. You know, And at the end of the day, it, we are responsible to the story first and foremost and not the characters. And that's important, I think, to recognize. Um having said that, sometimes it does feel like dictation a little bit. And there's moments when, particularly with this novel, uh Marisol was such a vibrant voice and she was very determined to tell her story. And um I had to listen to it, but I also had to guide the story in certain directions and curtail it in different ways. And that's the conversation piece, right? Um when you create a character that's very alive feeling, they're always going to want to kind of take over the page and they're going to have needs and wants and things like that. And your job as the writers to mitigate that with where the story needs to go using your writer brain and your reader brain, which I think sometimes we sleep on a little bit, but Mm. the brain that if you're writing for kids is that little kid that stayed up late reading books, you know, the brain that, the brain that if we're writing for adults is the adult that stays up late reading books or whatever it may be. Um, What the reader either wants to know next or wants to have withheld or wants to not, you know, not know and have to s- suffer through waiting to find out about or what what's exciting to see where we go next. Those are important questions that we always have to ask ourselves throughout the process. Um, but again, questions, right? Questions have answers. The The whole process of writing is a call and response. And yes, it's 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 an internal one very often, but is there such a thing as internal, right? Because you're constantly taking in messages from the universe and you're constantly spitting them back out, which is... Art, which is writing, which is the creative process in a nutshell. Um, the way that it goes back to me, to storytelling, is that that is on a very just factual level, that is the root of everything we do as storytellers is tell stories. And that first happened with voice. You know, Homer was not – and Homer was illiterate and he yeah. was blind, um, if well, he was so a he at all, right?
0: And supposedly – all the repetition is uh, were placeholders for mm. the people who were who were doing the incantations of the story. Mm. It would allow you to know where to stop. Right, and oh, pick I love it up that. again. That's
1: fascinating, and exactly, and that's see, that's baked into what we do, you know, and and repetition, call and response. I mean, story itself is a call and response, right? Any writing manual or teacher will tell you that the beginning of a story is a question, and the end is the answer to that question, and and the things that make us turn the page is that every every section of it has questions and answers in a constant revolving cycle, just like the moon and the sun are chasing each other in mythology, you know? And that's why we love story is that, is that we have questions and we have answers and we want to know what they are. And we're always in conversation with the universe. And I think some aspect of story is about providing another voice in that conversation. Um, and that's prayer. That is very much prayer. Prayer is sometimes I think we simplify prayer to just mean you want something so you ask for it. Yeah. Prayer is saying, thank you. To the world you know prayer is taking a walk across a bridge and just saying "Ooh, look at that water you know prayer is like just pausing and breathing is Yeah. prayer and and
0: well i know in judaism there's like if you're an orthodox jew there's prayers for almost everything like there's right. a prayer for seeing a rainbow right and there's a prayer right. that your orifices that should be closed ah. are closed when they're closed and <laughs> open when they should be open i too
1: pray that that happens <laughs> yes exactly but um like exactly
0: like that idea that you could Say thank you for everything that yes. we normally just take for granted.
1: Absolutely, that and and putting down food is an act of prayer. You know, for uh, for at an altar. Um, And I think that's the other piece we get caught up on is prayer simply as words. Prayer is actions. Prayer mm-hmm. in action is an amazing thing. Taking a walk is a prayer. Like I said, you know, uh, writing is a prayer. Um, Sitting down to write every day is a prayer that one day that everything that you put down in, in this in this document will be mass-produced into a book, you know, that's a prayer. It's a prayer that's involved, that is put into motion by an action that you take. Um, And I think the more intentional we are about it, um, the better it gets as a process. Um, I know a lot of writers, like, hate writing. And I really love writing. Like, I love it. Um, I hate editing. (laughs) Um, which I'm sure if you wanted to dig me, you could say, obviously, but, <laughs> um, but no, I just don't enjoy it I do it. I just don't yeah. enjoy the process. Right? right. Um, and, and I don't begrudge anybody who hates writing. Um, I feel bad for them because it takes a lot of writing to write a book and whatever. <laughs> but, right. um, I do think if we sit down with intentionality and like, I, I'll, I do have on a good day, I have ritual around sitting down to write, but it's the ritual of Slowing myself down and listening to an entire song all the way through hmm. instead of just sitting down and, you know, and just trying to get the words out and da da da. Again, it doesn't always work. I don't always remember to, or maybe I'm in a hurry. But Is it, it the same song? No, it's always a different, different song. song. Yeah, otherwise, sometimes they'll be the same song for a couple months, though. Yeah. <laughs> but I find when I do do that, everything flows much smoother than when I'm in a hurry and I just try to jump in and, like, you know, we need, we need to give our brain a little bit of transition room to get to that creative space from that everyday you know, drollery space. Mm.
0: Well, I, I wanted to, uh, circle back to mm. this in betweenness theme. Yes. One because, of my <laughs> <laughs> because you've written both several books for adults and several books or many books for adults and many books for young adults, mm-hmm. but many of your middle grade and young adult novels, many of them tackle what many would consider adult themes, mm. gentrification, patriarchy, racial profiling, mm-hmm. police brutality, Cultural appropriation, colorism, and you could look at Mari Soul's journey mm. in your adult novel, *The Book of Lost Saints*, one that dramatizes sort of a pivotal moment of self-discovery as a as a common moment that you see dramatized in young adult novels, mm. um, even though the book is clearly not a young adult novel. Right. Um, so, what defines it for you? Sure. What What makes one book? what it is versus the other and and not from the marketing perspective no no i know i mean obviously there's the pressures you get from your editor well i think we should lean towards this (laughs) but um do you do you have do you have the audience in mind in this regard Hmm. when you're writing and are there certain things you're avoiding or foregrounding when doing one versus the other
1: right right well one interesting thing i love love seeing book of last Things. Constantly popping up on young adult book lists <laughs> because I because I, people know me as a young adult writer, so they kind of assume that it is, which yeah. is fine with me because I think uh, young people can take a lot from the book. Um, I, do, I do,
0: too. I think it would yeah, work.
1: It works, right.
0: I mean, I read it as an adult novel. It is. But I feel like right. – Teenagers would totally
1: there's a lot there for a teenager. That, like, and there's a long period of time in which she's a teenager and we're getting right. in her life. Um but to come back to your question, I think what I would push back on is the idea of what's an adult theme a little bit. Um to me an adult theme is like erotica, right? Like <laughs> that's it. because um, I only say that because kids have to deal with all that stuff. So right. it's it has to be a kid's theme too, right? Like we can't just regulate um I don't know, you're not saying we should. Um but I, I do think it's in the discourse a little bit. It's like, you see it particularly, um, people say it around, these days, they'll say it around any book with a trans character, suddenly it's like, a, a adult, like, how dare they, like, all this terrible, really transphobic idea that, like, kids often who are trans, you know, are, can't deal with the idea of gender non-binary as well, when it's in fact a reality. So um, that's all when I go into a book, whatever, whoever, whatever age it's for, I do want to be dealing with the stuff that the reader is going to be dealing with on some level. Um, I, because the one thing I really don't want to ever do is sugarcoat. That's sort of the, that's the goal. <laughs> like that's the, the thing to stay away from the true South, I guess, like, um, is the sense that like, I'm just trying to make things sound like they're okay when they're not. Mm. Um, for me, I do have a very clear definition that, uh, in terms of age. Right. So for me, like a young adult novel, has to, the protagonist has to be a young adult, uh, a teenager. And the turning point in the novel really has to be about them stepping into adulthood on some level, right. Um, whether that's through fighting a supernatural war or dealing with mortality or whatever it might be. Um, Cause to me, like what defines a book is the central crisis. And in any way, the central crisis is going to be about shedding some of the mythologies of, of innocence of childhood and, 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 actively stepping forward into adulthood or into another level of maturity. And that's what defines Shadow Shaper for what it is. So it, in, in some ways it's as simple as like, how old is the character? And if they're, they spend most of the book being an adult, then it's an adult book, you huh. know, like, which isn't to be um, blasé about it. But, <laughs> right. you know, take a novel like Salvage the Bones, one of the best novels of like this century easily, um, Jasmine Ward. It's not marketed as a as a young adult book. And it won the National Book Award in the, in, in the adult category. Um, but to me, it's a young adult book. And I say that with love, obviously. I love it. Um, and I understand marketing is one thing. And But that's a book about a teenage girl, like really understanding the world around her on another level and stepping up into it mm. as an adult in some way. And so there it is.
0: Mm. Well, I want to ask you something mm-hmm. that you're often asked mm-hmm. and that you often speak about, which is about writing about, writing across difference, yeah, yeah. your work puts black and brown characters at the center of your stories. Mm-hmm. But in the book of lost saints, one of the main points of view that you inhabit is also a woman mm-hmm. and elsewhere you've had black women, protagonists mm-hmm. and queer women of color.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is something that you've written and spoken about and thought about mm-hmm. deeply. Mm-hmm. And it's something that comes up all the time in, in conversations mm-hmm. right now. Like yeah. I just had one with, with Zadie Smith. I don't know if you read her, her latest no, New York review of books article about this very thing. Oh. Um, but other writers too, like and yeah. everybody has a different way. They, um, square themselves to this question. Yeah. So talk to us about how you square yourself to the debate. Right. What considerations you go through when you're making a leap into the lives of others that are not yours.
1: Right. It is a tough question. It is one I've thought a lot about. There are no easy answers. That I know. And um, much like with the Cuba debate, sometimes the um, rhetoric becomes sort of overwhelming to try to sort through and and make sense of, which is part of why I wrote the article. I wrote um, um, 12 Fundamentals of Writing the Other and the Self. Um, And the first thing I say in that is that we're always writing the self and we're always writing the other. And I don't think there's any way to not, as a fiction writer, uh, walk in that truth. Um, and I don't think that I also don't say that to mean like it's a great equalizer or it's a sort of flat playing field in any way. It's, it's simply a truth that we have to deal with as as people who write fiction. Um, that doesn't mean you can do anything you want and it, it doesn't mean that those differences don't matter. In fact, the opposite, it means they matter a lot, um, because of the great responsibility of both writing ourselves and writing people who aren't us. And that's exactly what it is. And I think responsibility is a word that needs to be brought into effect more. And that's really what most of the time people are actually asking for is that writers be accountable and responsible to the words and to the stories that they put out into the world, that we put out into the world. And when we do it badly, that we deal with that truth and that, that we deal with the fact that these books do indeed affect people's lives. And that's where I find the side of of things where people are kind of like, Oh, don't tell me what to write. And let me, I'm just going to write anything I want. And it's censorship. If you critique me, like it's not, it's not at all. Um, but also I find it to be a very cynical view of the power of story when folks suddenly folks who in other circumstances happily triumph and trumpet, you know, the greatness of storytelling in the world, because they're book people, usually, um, reviewers, writers, who have you, um, suddenly want to say that stories don't affect people deeply and can't hurt people. If they can save lives, which they can, they can also destroy lives. And that's a truth. That's verifiable in the books, you know, like we've seen it happen in history. So that means that we have to take this very seriously. That means that it's, it can't just be about the research, which I think is another kind of simple thing that people fall back on. Like it's as if like facts were kind of the end all be all of truth. Um, and, and it's never that simple. Um, it's about responsibility. And I think in terms of strategy, it's a lot of it comes down to looking at ways that we've done it wrong in the past and, and not trying to protect ourselves. I know one mistake that I was very consciously I'm constantly consciously trying to avoid is the, is the one of, of the person of privilege who's just trying to write a book wherein they come out looking good at the end, you know, or, or just disappear entirely. Um, despite the the ways that we benefit from horrible things that happen in the world. Right. You know, so with with Shadow Shaper, it would have been very easy for me to write a book wherein there wasn't street harassment or other forms of patriarchy where you know all Nice little abuelos were just nice little abuelos who shared all of their cultural traits with their granddaughters and everything else, but that's not the world we live in, and it would have been a lie, you know, and and I could have come out looking good. But um, similarly, I could have written a a Latinx community wherein, like, we all just get along and there's no colorism and we're just sort of a, a beautiful shade of brown. And that's the story we get a lot when we pick up books about Latinx culture is just like, oh, brown, you know, like, oh, ambiguous brown, sort of light brown, you know, and that's why it was very important to really lean into the fact that that's not true. And that, that, you know, we have we so many of us have just stories of colorism and histories of it and and all the ways that our families have been torn apart because of that dynamic. So. Um, it's about looking at what's been done badly and, and what can be done better. And it's about avoiding the traps of, of, of self-protection and, and making, I think myself vulnerable as much as possible, ultimately about listening and particularly again, listening to those uncomfortable moments when I'm like, okay, yeah, that's real. <laughs> you know, Okay. That, you know, that, that's something we need to deal with. And that's where it's going to go is on the page.
0: Well, oh, I love when you wrote when we create characters from backgrounds different than our own, we're really telling the deeper story of our own perception. Yes. And also this line you quote from the poet Kwame Dawes, Mm -hmm. racist writing is a craft issue. A racist stereotype is a cliche. It's been done quite a bit. It's a craft failure. I love that. (laughs) Just to bring that right down into the words.
1: Exactly, And it is. And, and what's, messed up. I've been in workshops with people who write failure pieces, you know, in part because they're sexist. And it's sort of like, I have just such mixed feelings about it because you can't come to them and be like, this is sexist. Cause then they'll be like, I mean, you can, and I do, but, um, they're not going to hear you and they're not going to get why that's a problem. And then you're like, it's bad writing. Like it's boring. Like this, this character showed up just to, to have sex, you know, like that's not a real character. That's just a placeholder and right. it's not a human. And then you can see it start to kind of settle in. And, I mean, what do you do with that? You know what I mean? Like, if that's what it takes for you to write well, I don't know if I even want you to write well, but that's another story. <laughs> it's just that's that's very much at the seat of it. You know, I think take Lovecraft, right? Like, Lovecraft had an amazing and racist brain. He was terrible at prose, but he had some wild and sometimes really cool ideas.
0: He was good with adjectives.
1: Yeah. He liked that. He (laughs) He liked liked adjectives. That's correct. He wasn't good. good (laughs) He enjoyed them more than anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) He was a terrible approach. (laughs) Um, But you know, he had, he had cool ideas about how to tell a shared world story and, and, and how to like bring in different ideas onto the page. Like he did things that I like, you know, Um, imagine if like he hadn't been a racist dick, like he would have, yeah, His stories would have gone so much further, Um, but he was trapped in like this weird world of his own racism and and it hindered him as a writer.
0: Well, that makes me think, going back to your your teaching and your love of teaching, that in your storytelling class that you have at Skillshare, Mm -hmm. where you say conflict is the fundamental building block of a story. Yeah. But that power is rarely talked about in writing programs. Yes. And you can't understand conflict yes. without understanding power dynamics.
1: I'm here amending myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: true. Go go you. <laughs> but but this idea of understanding power yeah. and power dynamics in order to successfully write conflict seems like very tied to the ability to write across difference. Because mm-hmm. if you don't Definitely. understand power dynamics. Right how in the world are you not going to step in it when exactly. you write across? Difference?
1: Or not just step in it, but like how are you going to build a competent functioning, multi-layered character if you're not looking at what their relationship to power is? Because our relationships to power, whoever you are, you know, and, and, but that includes, I think it always comes back to writing the self again. Like, you know, people with privilege are terrible at writing themselves and we don't start there. I mean, Every writer of color I know is fed up to death of the question that we always get at panels. And someone goes, "Hey, what if, can I, you know, ask your permission, <laughs> right, right, to write their Mexican whatever?" Like, and I'm like, you know, what if you wrote your yourself, but like got good at that before you started writing other people? And that's complicated. You know, I, I don't think it's that simple. First of all, don't be asking permission. Like, I, you're doing it wrong if you're asking permission. That aside, um, yeah, talking about privilege it's really hard because we don't have practice at it because we're not good at it and it's uncomfortable and our parents often didn't do it with us so we had to figure it out you know where as we went and what did that mean and then have difficult conversations that's also great um literature It's like talking about stuff that's really hard to talk about and conflict and power and all that stuff um, and i think the more we lean into it the problem is like it takes a lot of work off page and you don't always want to be working those things out on the page that then gets published and reproduced a billion times. Right. Yes. Like the work that you should be doing with other (laughs) people. With other people. Absolutely. Like have conversations like, but don't do it. Just don't suddenly realize like, Oh my God, I'm privileged. Let me write a novel about it. (laughs) Right. Like, like deal with it. Like really deal with it. Like go, go, you know, to workshops and, and, and to meetings and to deal with other people who are dealing with it and are good at it. Have a guide. You know, like have a mentor and, and, you know, it's hard because so much happens publicly now and so much processing happens publicly and people get torn down, sometimes rightfully because they're saying really horrible things on gigantic platforms Mm -hmm. that, again, affect people, right? Like, it's not just people being mean, it's people saying the words you say matter and they hurt other people and we have to talk about that. And that's not a personal attack, that's a reality that we have to deal with to protect our children sometimes. Yeah.
0: Well, can you talk about Octavia Butler in in light of this? Because Mm. you've talked about how uh, you were a theory nerd. Mm -hmm. And at one point you thought you were going to write nonfiction essays. And you were into Foucault and Bill Hooks. And that Butler was pivotal for you in in terms of power dynamics, but within a narrative. Right. So tell us about Butler and in in general, but also in relationship to you.
1: Yeah, no, the best, my favorite, one of my favorite sort of like of my own origin stories is Mrs. Middleton, Mrs. Ines Middleton, seventh grade, Boston Latin School. One of those teachers that terrified everybody, but we all loved her to death. <laughs> amazing, amazing woman. She was like four hundred pounds. She knew Kung Fu. She ate garlic constantly because she had a heart <laughs> problem. And she really said she would kill us and we believed her, but she loved us to death. <laughs> and um I just she just took me aside one day and put Blood Child into my hand. Octavia Butler's collection of short stories.
0: In seventh grade.
1: In seventh grade. Wow. Yeah. And like <laughs> for no reason. I wasn't trying That's to wild. be a writer back then. Like yeah. I, I I was definitely extremely creative and I'm sure it came out of my work. I have no doubt of that. But like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like very randomly, and it was yeah. someone. It was her copy. She just gave it to me, and I still have it. Um, and she died, so I don't get to ask her why. Mm. We were friends, you know. We we were friends after that class and everything. And um, but I didn't. I still even you know by the time she died, I didn't realize I was going to be a writer that um, adored Octavia Butler. Mm. And I and I read it then, and I was like, what is happening? <laughs> you know, completely blew my mind. But not in a way where I understood its power. Um, I really think of it as a time bomb, you know, because it was like 10 years later, maybe when exactly that happened, what you described, you know, I had gone to college and I had really turned away from all the fantasy in part because I couldn't find myself in it, not just myself, but also I I had beyond that beyond Butler, you know, there was, there wasn't that I could find, um, it was there, but I hadn't found it a lot of deep conversations about power at the time. I wasn't saying it that way. I just knew that it felt very simplistic, certain things, um, that I was reading in like the canon that it wasn't really dealing with power on the levels that I experienced it. And so I turned to people who would, to Baldwin, to Hooks, you know, to Eduardo Galliano, to folks who were very definitively and with a lot of clairvoyance and clarity deconstructing all of these um, different forms of power that we, that we walk around with and carry with us and inflict on each other and deal with. And that felt like truth. I still wanted dragons, you know, I still wanted, um, you know, all the different trappings of story and fantasy and everything. And so it was finding Octavia Butler again. In fact, when I was an organizer in New York after college, uh, I was working in Bushwick with a group of kids and they were reading, they had been assigned Parable of the Sower as their summer reading book. And I was like, oh, that's that writer that my teacher gave me in seventh grade. I was like, let me look at this. Ooh, what is happening here? And then I read everything she wrote. And I don't usually read everything that somebody wrote because I try to read a little more wide than I do deep for the most part. But um, with Octavia Butler, there was no stopping me. Um, And it was hard because she writes hard books, but so good, so worthwhile. She earns that hardness and makes it worth your time. and, And she never beats you down you know as much as like her characters do suffer and it's difficult to read sometimes she doesn't use it to abuse her her reader um she uses it to lift us up mm. and to get us through things and that's a that's a hard thing to do you know i don't think a lot of writers have figured out how to do that but she did and she did it in the in the realm of of saying something much more complex about power and the way that it moves through us and the way that we deal with it from above and below and and the way that it functions in and could potentially function in a world with aliens, you know, in a world with shapeshifters. And and she did it with love and she did it without flinching.
0: Well, speaking of power and thinking about living in sort of the, the current context of English hegemony, Mm. you not only employ Spanish language liberally in your books, you also feel strongly that Spanish words and all non-English words should not be italicized. Mm-hmm. So, talk to us about your break from convention in this regard, right? Um, about the the employment of Spanish, but the employment of Spanish without the highlighting italics. the uh, the them with italics.
1: It's especially, I would say, really in the, specifically in the realm of bilingual characters or a bilingual world, um, which we live in. Um, but just as an example, or as a um, if, if it was a character that didn't know Spanish that well and they were speaking Spanish, I would italicize their Spanish, because it jumps out, and that's what italics do
0: is right? make you make them jump out.
1: Yeah, it makes the words you know it makes the reader stop and say ah. It puts emphasis on a word. That's the function of italics. Um, so when we read uh, any sentence and and then suddenly there's a word in italics, the, this, that word is, is emphasized, um, which is exactly not what happens when a bilingual person speaks in Spanglish, right? Um, when we switch back and forth, it's, a, it's flow, which is what's so beautiful about language. And what's so beautiful about being bilingual is that the, the, there is an absolutely undeterred flow in going back and forth between those two languages to the point that a new language is created. That's why we have Spanglish and Yiddish and all these other um, forms of language. And in fact, all languages, really. You know, there's this myth that there's this pure anything is a lie myth in terms of a lie. Um, Spanish, English has tons of of Spanish words mixed into it already and and words from many other languages. Um, That's how, that's how language works. So on the one hand I think we're lying to ourselves when we try to like take words that are not in this language and then point them out as such and, and on the other hand it's just uh, again a craft failure because it doesn't read the way that it should sound. It reads like we stop and suddenly say biblioteca you know, in the middle of just being like oh yeah so I walked around the corner to the biblioteca <laughs> like, that's not how it works. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. that at all. It <laughs> does not ring true and our job is to make things ring true and grammar is supposed to make things clear and true and yeah. not just have it's not just arbitrary rules that we put there you know and I, there's arguments about clarity and i understand them but they don't they don't feel right to me i don't i don't agree with them but yeah. um but that video that i made has definitely been circulated throughout the publishing industry and i, I constantly run into editors who are like you know i was hardline like got I italicize all non-english languages until i saw your video oh and wow
0: that's must I, be
1: gratifying it's very gratifying like it's absolutely changed the game and then many many of my writer friends will just send it to their editors yeah <laughs> and just like just when as soon as the argument comes up they'll just say watch this video which is like a minute long <laughs> but it encapsulates that exactly and it's and it makes sense
0: and what about when people are speaking english but you say "estrange" strange versus strange or right. a special instead of special because, because i would it's have, true well it's true but right. like if i i imagined not that this is particularly relevant sure. to this, but like if a white writer did that, right. that might be looked at as like, I, I guess wrong. to the degree of how much they did it. Yeah. yeah. yeah like yeah.
1: How, are they, it's really about if it, you know, I think if so much of this is about like how well you do it, it's and again, craft, yeah. you know, no, I, I think mean? you're, like it's I think very true. much like there's, there's actually quite a few white writers who have written books from the point of view of other you know, races and and et cetera, and, and done all kinds of stuff and they've made it work. Now there's many who haven't made it work, but get all kinds of accolades anyway. (laughs) That's another story, but there's a lot who don't, you know, don't get torn down or, or criticized because they're doing it really, really well with respect and with, um, knowledge and understanding and, and looking at power and different things like that. So, you know, so much of it really just does come down to like, are you speaking truth or are you making up a story to make yourself feel better?
0: Well, I want to bef- before we end. I want mm-hmm. I want to return to this uh, notion that there are are, are not two sides, mm-hmm. but that there are two powerful, right. loud sides. Right. Because um, recently there was an op-ed in the New York Times by a Cuban writer living in Cuba named Wendy Guerra, mm. entitled "Cuban Women Await Their Me Too Moment."
1: Oh, I need to read that.
0: And in it, she talks about the erasure of women from the stories. Of revolutionaries. But she also speaks of the sexism that endures in contemporary Cuba. And mm. she says, I was born and raised in a system that exerts control under the guise of paternalism, mm-hmm. a system that caresses you as it beats you, mm. that teaches you but also inhibits you, mm. enlightens you, and censures you. We are hostages to a government that behaves like an abusive, old fashioned, sexist father from whom we must seek consent and forgiveness. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I'm guessing that life isn't easy for an outspoken Cuban artist living in Cuba today, who's actively critiquing the government and finding a voice in the New York times. And I don't want to compare her situation in in any way to yours, Mm -hmm. but it did make me wonder now that the book is out in the world. Yeah. Um, and you're writing in the in-between yes. and potentially risking blowback right. from both of the loud sides right. that your critiques of capitalism and contemporary right wing Cuban American politics and likewise your critiques of totalitarian communism would likely irk both of these sides respectively.
1: Yes.
0: And I just wondered how it's been so far.
1: So far, I've only heard wonderful things about the book. Oh, oh, good. I, ju- I just have no idea. Um, you have the right social media feed, pretty much, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I guess some people will call an echo chamber. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's gotten into any of those hands yet. Yeah. Um, and maybe, or maybe they got wind of what it's about and um, don't want to read it. Uh, I have no idea. I'm very, I'm, cu- I'm very curious. Um, I think it's a little bit of like a hit dog situation. You know what I mean? Like the the there, there's a lot of blood on either side and, um, there's a lot not to be proud of. Um, we don't talk a lot about the history of terrorism that the right wing Cuban, um, exile community has been involved with publicly, you know, but like happily loudly for a very long time for decades. Um, and how awful that is. And, you know, there's, there's just so much blood. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, wa- I wanted it when I was writing it. I haven't decided if I'm going to go back to Cuba yet. Um, mm. I have no plans to anytime soon. I don't know. Is if the it'll...
0: possibility of a, I mean,
1: could you do a reading there? Uh, sure. I don't know. I'm Probably not. No, yeah. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I did once. I mean, I've, I've read there. I've taught workshops there. Yeah. Um, But I don't know what would happen now. I yeah. really don't. That's the hard thing. You just don't know, you know, like. Um, a movie like um, *Strawberries and Chocolate*, you know, which talks very openly about certain homophobic aspects of the of the regime, and um, I think the story about that was that the director was a very uh, big figure in the revolution, was in fact tortured by the Batista government, and was a good friend of Castro's, and kind of got away with it on that, you know, strength. Um, huh. But these are all stories that are told, and who really knows? And that's, right. but that's the panopticon, right? Like, I don't know what would happen. I'm not sure if I go back right now whether my book has even been hit the radar or if it has, if it's pissed off certain people. I have no idea. I don't feel like testing that water. Well, the not knowing changes your behavior. Exactly. And especially with who we have in the government over here, I have no faith that, like, I would be in any good hands if I were to be in an international incident. (laughs) Not that, like, I even think it would get to that. Right. But you don't know. The truth is, you don't know. And I don't really plan to find out the hard way because I have other books to write. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, when you, when you say that your favorite book as a kid was The Iliad, yes, I suspect that you grew up in a very literary family and, I did. You, and you did. Your mom has a PhD in world literature. Mm-hmm. Your dad was a sci-fi nerd. Yes. Your sister, Malka Older, is like you, a very successful writer. Hey. Um, but if we expand out from your family of origin mm-hmm. and look at benevolent spirits either living mentors or mm. the influences from writers of the past
1: mm. who
0: and what are some of the writers and writings that helped the book of lost saints take form ah
1: great question actually i'm going to take it to in kind of in a refrain to the other question of about uh, spoken word really being the root of all we do there are of course many writers who got me here but um The voice, I would say, every character is, you know, pulled from a lot of different, at least in my experience as a writer, I tend to grab like maybe one little vocal tick of one person and then another thing from someone else and then mash them up and then add a bunch of other imaginary stuff. But um, there was a woman named Carmen Gonzalez, who, in fact, um, Carmen is who Last Shot is dedicated to. Mm. Um, She was my friend in Cuba and... She was kind of like a guiding spirit, even when she was still alive. She was the one who I would go to, to sort of try to sort through all of the many, many weird feelings of being like a ghost that I describe in the, in the, um, author's note to this book and just what it meant to be there. And all of those emotions, I would just go to Carmen's, um, she actually lived in a big tower called the Foxa and it's right by the water in Havana and, so I would just go, and she had these two little dogs, and she would make repas um, and feed two to the dogs and then feed one to me. <laughs> she had a thermos okay. of coffee. And um, we would just talk, you know, just talk trash. And mm. we would talk about – She it, it's so weird. She turned out to be a huge fantasy fan. Mm. But I had no idea the whole time. And we told stories about our lives and talked about history. You know, she was just one of my best friends. She was probably in her 60s, I think, when I knew her. Um, but I didn't know until one day I went into her bedroom and saw the entire wall-to-wall library of, like, cheap fantasy paperbacks that she had um, that were amazing, That I, I and I was just blown away. Again, at that point, I don't think I was totally sure I was going to be a fantasy writer but it was another one of those moments along the way that was probably the world prodding me a little bit to tell me that I should. Yeah. Um, but she was um, she was someone who wouldn't have subscribed to one side or the other. She was someone who wouldn't let her voice be dimmed, even though she lived in the midst of a dictatorship. And she said to me once that she was a stayer, and she knew that. And, you know, as much as um, I think she probably would have thrived on a certain level here, I think she also would have crumbled here. And she thought about it many times, but um, ultimately she stayed and she, so, there's so much of her voice in Marisol. Soul. Mari Soul mm-hmm. isn't her. Mari Soul isn't based on her right. in terms of the events of her life, but voice, you know. And again, this is how we tell stories. Carmen would pour some coffee into her cup out of her thermos and light a popular, and sit back and reminisce, you know, and chuckle. She just always there was there were terrible stories, you know. There are stories of absolute tragedy and people who. Should have lived better lives who didn't because of imperialism, because of terrible policies, you know, because of um, health care not working, all kinds of things. And, you know, she would laugh this very cigarette stained laugh and then just launch into it. And then I would just sit there enraptured, you know, and that's a lost saint.
0: What can we expect from you next?
1: Mm, lots of Star Wars ahead. <laughs> Can't talk well, about it, though. <laughs>
0: wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait yes. a minute. I've been hearing about Project Luminous. Exactly. And you're involved, and everyone wants to
1: know what Project Luminous I know. is. Wouldn't it be amazing if I could tell you? <laughs> doot, 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 doot. And then... <laughs> no way. And what else? And, <laughs> but I will say in January everything yeah. will be revealed. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, a lot of everything, not everything, but That's a bunch exciting. of stuff. It is exciting. I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm so excited to be able to talk about all this stuff I'm working on. I will say it's really really cool. Okay. In every way you could imagine. That's all I could say. But on the non Star Wars side, yes. Um the Shadow Shaper cipher ends in January. It's a uh, Shadow Shaper is kind of my I feel like it's just the work that birthed me a little bit. Um, it's not the first book that I put out, but it's the first book I started writing. Mm-hmm. And it's just really fundamental to who I am. So that's really exciting. And in Shadow Shaper Legacy, which I'm actually going to read a section for you of, um, it it really gets into the mythology of shadow shaping and where it came from originally. And there's a lot of lore in it, which I really enjoyed writing, but also was very gratified to weave that into the modern day story. And especially all we've been talking about is is very much wrapped up in this book too. the idea of history being present with us and the different mythologies we create, how they can destroy and lift us up. All of that is there. And it was just really fun to write all that. And uh, I'd, I'd put a lot of I planted a lot of seeds in Shadow Shaper, not knowing if I, they would ever grow because Shadow Shaper sold as a single book. Mm. I had no idea if it would be a series or not. And it wasn't until it sold well that I found out I got to write, you know, two more. Um, And then there's two novellas in the series, too, which are already out. So it's really exciting to wrap that up. I Mm -hmm. love that book a lot. And I love the whole series. That comes out January 7th. All right. Yes. And then Dactyl Hill Squad 3 comes out in June. Wow. Um, Yeah. Which is also really fun. And in that they're in New Orleans. It's 1863. And um, the Civil War is raging. And they actually spend a lot of time in Mexico. Because there was a Mexican Civil War happening at the same time, or a war against the French, which was also kind of a civil war and was very deeply entwined with ours in ways that we don't talk about a lot. Hmm. You know, Cinco de Mayo is not Mexican Independence Day, nope. but it is actually really connected to our history in certain ways, um, peripherally, but still in a fascinating way. So yeah. it gets into a lot of that. Plus, there's um, pterodactyls.
0: Oh, well, so great having you on the it was show today, a lot Daniel. Of
1: fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: We are talking today to Daniel Jose Older about his latest book, The Book of Lost Saints. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neyman, your host. Today's episode was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. You can find more of Daniel Jose Older's work at danieljoseolder.net. For the bonus archive, Older reads the first utterly hypnotizing chapter of his soon- to be released Shadow Shaper Legacy. This joins supplemental material by Richard Powers, Ted Chang, Layli Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado Boris Gander John Keene Cristina Rivera Garza Diane Williams and others all of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers finally I'd like to thank Imre Ladbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro their album Imre Lodbrog, A e Sapatita Mi can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.